everybody. I'm here. Ken, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Go. Can you hear me? Have we lost you, Nancy? We're having a good conversation ourselves. Well, I I can hear you both now. I don't know what you need to do. I, I don't hear Nancy. I hear you, Gordon. Okay. Well, gee. Well, I'll just continue what I'm saying, and we'll see if they ever say they get us back. Um, that you and I both found that uh, that uh, people were more important than possessions, and uh, that the spiritual choices one makes in life are the most important thing you can do. Right now, I've got you loud and clear, Nancy. I think I had you on for a moment. Are we all together again? The modern technology isn't it wonderful? We should stick with mental telepathy, don't you think, Gordon? Gordon, are you with us? I think we lost him, too. Well, Ken, I think it'd be you, Ken. I've got a couple of questions for you. Ken, this is Stephen. I'd like to keep this rolling if we can. I've just watched a recent video that you uh, have on YouTube at the Smithsonian Institute where uh, you were filming uh, and talking about the lunar module and your time with... Uh, with NASA and being involved in the lunar program, uh, uh, how were you able to get permission from the Smithsonian to uh, do the filming there? It, that's that's a rather interesting. You know, I had been um, in Washington D.C. along with uh, Richard C. Hoagland and his crew. Uh, we had been filming the uh, the National Press Club uh, session that we had there, where we we gave them all the information around the world to know what uh, NASA's uh, Secret mission for dark mission, if you only two really was. So we were filming some background shots around Washington D.C. Went over to the uh, Aerospace Museum, uh, went right in, and I met the director of the museum. Told him exactly who I was, and that he had my spacecraft in there, and we'd love to be able to shoot a few shots. And he was just excited as he could be, and allowed us to come on in. And we we took from the front door and walked around. And I I kind of felt like, oh, I guess like like a kid in a candy store when we turned the corner and we saw the lunar module better known as LTA-8, which is Lunar Test Article Number 8. That's the one that was actually space-rated, and we did all the testing inside the Chamber B at Johnson Space Center to uh, uh, prove that it was space-worthy before we actually flew it into orbit and then on to the moon. But anyway, I got the opportunity to walk around and point out all the various things, which I guess the average person wouldn't know about uh, the, the landing probes at the bottom of the feet on it, as well as the end antennas were, and the rendezvous and docking antennas, uh, where the um, cargo bays were, how we, we pulled out where the thrust controller assemblies were. It was it was a great opportunity to actually be there back with my old spacecraft and get it on film. Uh, in fact, I was hoping I was going to get a copy of that video, and I, was, I never got one. Um, well, right, right now that video is on YouTube. If you just uh, put in your name, search your name, Smithsonian, it will come up as a two-part series. It's about, I guess, close to 10 minutes on each segment. So you're about 20 minutes of video time at the Smithsonian. And I had watched that the other night producing the show here, and I take an interest to who we bring on the show. And I was very interested in what you had to say. And I do quite a bit of research on different stories and background stories. and. For many, many years, I remember growing up in 1969, and as being the devil advocate here, as probably what Nancy would do, uh, 
I always wondered, did we really land on the moon? And uh, I looked at the photos and uh, wasn't really convinced. And one of the things that just, and hear me out here, being the devil's advocate, okay. in those days, in, in the 1960s, if you remember, everything was super large. I mean, computers were large, cars were large, transistor radios were large, and on and on. And we didn't have the miniaturization, and we didn't have the computerization as we do today. So when I looked at the initial uh, project that we were going to land on the moon, I said, great. I said, but do we really have the capability to do that? And after seeing the photos of what I saw, the 16-millimeter black and white photos, and not seeing any stars in the sky, and not seeing anything, I saw a flag that was wavering. And my question to you is the American flag. If there was no gravity on the moon, how could the flag be wavering as though there was air pressure there to make that flag waver? Can you explain that? I sure can. Uh, and, and the problem you have is, is you only get part of the story or you only get part of a clip. And when uh, they were moving the flag and, and getting it set up, it had a, a ridge pole across the top, okay, and uh, in order to make it stand out. So once they set it up and they poked it into the lunar surface and backed away from it, it was still carrying on some of the motion of, of, of made it look like it was waving, and that's really what we wanted it to be able to look like, old glory waving uh, on the moon. And, and as see, you brought up the question about um, did we really go to the moon and the technology, we didn't have the technology to make what some of these modern, and I, I jokingly say, here, I turn 70 next year. I'm one of the, the youngest ones that was in the program at the time. But we have these young people who have looked at some of these faked pictures that someone else has created, and they come up and say, well, it's impossible. We never went to the moon. And or someone says, you couldn't go through the Van Allen belt or too much radiation would have killed you. And then they get a hold of someone like me and say, well, okay, first of all, we didn't stay in the Van Allen belt. We passed right straight through it. And you got about as many Rankins as you get when you have your teeth x-rayed. So that shoots that one down. I had another young man say, well, it's impossible for a guy to get in and out of the lunar module door uh, in a spacesuit. Well, I've got hundreds of pictures of me crawling in and out of the lunar module of the vacuum chambers uh, at Houston wearing the spacesuit and the life support system. So when you have these nincompoops that want to come out and sound like they're authorities on something that they weren't even born when it happened, you know, those of us who were there that did it, we can guarantee you we did go to the moon. Okay, well, I've got, a question. I've got a question for you, and I've just watched your film and uh, your, heard your words, and I'm going to, 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 to play back the tape to what you said. I didn't say this, what you said. Okay. You, you were standing in front of the lunar module at the Smithsonian, and uh, you pointed to the lunar module, and you said most people thought that the camera was mounted uh, on the side or the lower portion of the lunar module, but you pointed up to the top left corner of the lunar module. You said the 16-millimeter camera was mounted here up above, so that way when Neil Armstrong, I believe, was stepping out from that ladder, that camera that was on the lunar module was the one that captured his first steps off the ladder onto the moon. Was that correct? Uh Almost, um, and if you're saying I would point it up to the left, that is actually the right-hand window of the lunar module. Most people don't think in reverse when they're looking at something. And the 16-millimeter sequence camera in the lunar module is mounted at the top of that triangular-shaped window. Now, that window is at a slant of about, uh, I think it's 18, some odd degree, 19 and a half degrees uh, in the bottom, which
which allowed you to lean forward. If you were inside the lunar module, you could lean forward, look down the window, and you could see the ladder going down the front leg of the lunar module. So when uh, Neil made his little journey down the ladder and took his first step off of the landing pod, that was being filmed by the 16-millimeter camera in the right-hand window of the lunar module. So what you're saying, just so that way we can describe this to the audience, because the photos are out on the Internet, you can see them. And I, I am old enough to remember this because I remember all the photos are out, and vividly, I remember his first steps going down the ladder and when he landed. The photos that, the, the explanation, direction that you're explaining, the camera had to be from the craft facing Neil as he stepped down, and the photos that are on display for the world to see show that the camera position was behind Neil, either to the left or to the right, and not in front of him as the way you've described it. So my question is, why the discrepancy? I would have to see which one you're looking at because uh, once we started, not just Neil, but I'm talking about um, subsequent flights, once one of the first things they did when they, they exited the lunar module was to set up the camera on a tripod uh, a little bit away from the lunar module so that it could record their, their activities around this. Apollo 11, they weren't outside but just a very, very short time to grab a few rocks and a little dust and get back inside and take off. So we didn't actually have time. Well, I'll take it back. We did try to set up a pod, but uh, I think it was either Buzz tripped over the cable and broke the cable, and that, that part of that was, was caught on film. Well, my, my, my question really basically is if that camera was mounted as you said it was mounted, then, because I, I do a lot of film photography, and... Uh, the angle that you speak of, the photos that are showed out for the public show it, it's behind the astronaut and not in front of him or, or, or to the side of him from in front of him. And so it, it poses a major question to me that if these photos that are out there show are coming from behind the astronaut and they're not from the camera that's positioned on the lunar module, we've got a problem, Ken. Well, the question I have to ask you, first of all, are you talking about the descent uh, down the ladder on Apollo 11, 12, uh, 14? I am talking about, I, I am speaking about the first flight because the first flight is the one, is the major one in question. Everything thereafter, to me, is insignificant. Uh, I look right at the now. first I look at the first one, and the first one to me is the one that really draws a red flag, and to most people, because A, it was something sure. that we, it was in, in a time where we, we just really got into the computerization age and, and, and uh, the, the entire technology. So we were, in, at the time growing up, I remember we were in a, in, a, in a race with the Russians. So at that time, we were both trying to, to get to the moon. I remember Kennedy saying, we, you know, you know, we will land the moon before this decade is over, uh, and God bless his soul, he never got to see it. So I remember the Sputnik, the first orbit of the Sputnik, and I know we were in a race, you know, uh, against the Soviet Union in those days, who were supposed to be, you know, uh, the evil empire as we all come to have known them. So I understand that at the time there was a great deal of, of media attention drawn to this because we were to, to be, you know, the, the great power of America. So a lot was riding on this. So 
I am not doubting your credentials whatsoever. I am just trying to understand why I'm having a hard time with these photos if they're coming from behind and the angle that you spoke of just doesn't jive. So for me, okay. you know, I like to see if you can embellish upon what you've told me. I'll be happy to. And and if you've been in, in commercial photography, you'll know that uh, quite frequently they will find a, a good shot that represents what they're trying to display. And I've had I've dealt with this many times where in and my question would be whoever put together the video or whatever it was you were looking at, did they not take some of the film from a later mission so that it showed what it would look like as you're coming down off of them? Because there was no way we could do that on Apollo 11. We were It was not part of the, um, the mission plan. It was not there. Uh, the cameras wouldn't have been out there to do it anyway. So well, uh, the only answer I can have is that someone, someone has put together a, a composite to make it so they could see what it would have looked like if they had a camera out looking at the Mars because that never happened. We didn't have one there. Well, I remember from what I saw as a child, I was probably, this was a 69, so I had to be oh, at least 15 years old, so I wasn't a child at that point. I pretty, had a pretty good recall. So what I remember the photos, and I remember it was a Walter Cronkite, was probably the premier newsman in, in that day who was uh, making the broadcast about it. And I sat there with my family. We watched it. And I remember right now, I've got a pretty good recall of memory, and I have a photographic memory and recall the angle that I saw, what I saw. And based on what, I'm, what you said about the lunar module, where the camera position, I've got to differ with you and based on my recollection of his first step down onto the lunar uh, surface of the moon. And I'm only speaking of the first flight. I'm going to say that there has to be some discrepancy in, in your memory or what burned into your mind because... Uh, and I've looked at all of them. I was there. There was no film or pictures being taken from the outside uh, until after Buzz got outside. And then they were using they were using Hasselblad cameras to take uh, the pictures that they did on the surface. That's during Apollo 11. So the only I've got a question. I've got a question right, for you. You know, uh, moving mo moving away from that topic. And thank you for answering that. You handled that very well. Uh, and. Uh, but somebody's got to ask the tough questions here, so I guess it'll sure. be me here today, Ken. I had a question. Um, uh, what was it that made the United States decide to go into a joint mission with Russia and other countries in this space mission? What, what, do you, what was the catalyst for that? Well, I know that um, uh, very few people know but that uh, uh, Kennedy had a, a meeting with Khrushchev, and uh, this decision was made there is to make a joint effort and then um, either the um, no I was in I was in ring corn 62 62 we had the Cuban thing um, it was just it was a an, an attempt to try to get the high technology two countries to work together instead of uh, working separately because that in, in a way we actually outspent Russia going to the moon and it pretty well led to the breakdown in the, the Berlin Wall and the uh, Collapse of the uh, Soviet Empire. It was it was an attempt to try to work together as high technology. I got to work with the cosmonauts that came in during the Apollo Soyuz missions. Uh, some very fine, uh, very fine scientists, engineers, and um, uh, cosmonauts. It, well, it's you're a shame exactly that we right. work together. Yeah. You know, it's interesting uh, though. They had put out some uh, photos of the, uh, let's say, the the backside of the moon. 
regarding possible uh, structures that were there that uh, they say it looked like they were facilities there. And uh, so what's your take on that, the photos that they said that there was possible based on the moon that they, they had photographed? I mean, Dr. Thornton Page was the director of the planetary science department at NASA at the Johnson Space Center, actually for all of NASA during the, the Apollo mission. He came to me at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory, and since I was in charge of the data and photo control department there, asked me to go and pull a specific reel of the 16-millimeter sequence camera that was mounted on the service module connected to the command module that stayed in orbit while the lunar module went down on the lunar surface. So um, Mike Collins, it was his responsibility here in Apollo 11 to have that camera turned on to make continuous film strips of the orbits, which included as they would go behind on the dark side, as people call it, on the back side of the moon. And uh, on a, he called, uh, Dr. Page asked me to pull the film strip from Apollo 14, and, and this was about a 15-minute reel, because um, uh, that's about all they put on that reel. I, I got it together and took it to um, the building next to Mission Control where uh, Dr. Page had seven of the other astrophysicists um, and astronomers there. I ran the film and uh, we're coming around on the backside of the moon approaching a crater called Tsiolkovsky. And uh, as we, the sun angled on the backside, it was such that about half of the crater was in shadow and the other part was illuminated by the sun. As we approached the crater on the film, you can see a cluster of about five illuminated domes, the way they look like if they're illuminated from the inside, in the shade portion of crater Tsiolkovsky. And it looked like a steam column or something, a vent, coming up from one of them. Dr. Page asked me to stop the film. Oh, by the way, the reason he chose me to do that is because I had military experience using a gun sequence camera. And those that don't know what a gun sequence camera is, when the uh, pilots are flying missions or they're dropping bombs or they're in an attack and firing, they have a camera that will record what it is that they're, they're watching. This allows them to analyze the film later. They can stop the frames, go multiple frames at a time. They can zoom in close and back out. Well, this was the projector that I used. So Dr. Page had me freeze, zoom in on the crater, look at the, uh, the illuminated domes, back out, go forward. And he turned to the other some um, scientists there and says, well, boys, what do you think of that? And they all laughed. It was kind of like it was an inside joke. He had me complete the showing of the film, and I had to check it back in the photo department, which has a, um, a top-secret requirement to get into the back where we keep things stored. And uh, this is another side light for me to throw in for you real fast. Is that when I was carrying the film back in, into there, I went into the inner room. There was a light table about oh, three feet by uh, four feet. It had some, uh, um, I guess, uh, 10, by, 10 by 11, or yeah, 8.5 by 11, positive transparencies on it, and there were three people there, two men and a lady, and they were, with ink, they were painting out areas on the surface and on the horizon, and I asked them what they were doing. One of the guys quipped real quick, he says, we're, we're professional strippers. The um, young lady, she didn't like that too much, I guess, because she said, no, actually what we're doing is we're painting out the stars and things on the horizon because people would get confused about what they're seeing. And of course, later in years, I'm, I've seen where some of the towers and things that on the lib are, are on what you would consider the horizon on the lunar surface, where some of these, you know, three or uh, three mile or two mile high towers would actually be sticking up above the surface. Those things had been painted out as well. Anyway, I checked the film in, and um, the next day I was to show the same film to the NASA 
rank and file engineers. And um, as I get it started, I'm coming up on Tsiolkovsky, and I nudge, actually, there's my brother there, uh, Dr. Johnston. And I told him, I said, you're not going to believe what we saw on the moon. Take a look at this. And as we approach it, there's the dark area, and there's no lights, nothing being shown there. I told the audience that I'm having technical difficulties. Stopped and helped, took it out, examined it. There were no cuts or splices that I could determine at that time. At any rate, I put it back in, completed the showing, went back to check the film into the photo lab. I ran into uh, Dr. Page at the Lunar Simulator later that afternoon. I asked him, I said, Dr. Page, what happened to the uh, the lights and domes and things we found on the backside of the moon? And he kind of gave me a wink, and he said, uh, there was never anything there. Well, yeah, I, I, I saw that on your, uh, your YouTube uh, Smithsonian special. You make mention to that exact story verbatim, so you've just told that exactly the way I heard it yesterday. My question is, last okay. year last year I had uh, uh, came across some photos from the European Space Agency which uh, showed the possibility on Mars of a, uh, a community or a civilization on Mars that the photo had been scrubbed, but they unscrubbed the photo by taking out some of the uh, the resolution of it, and if you did a couple of things and you tweaked it a little bit, you're able to see the remnants of the possibility of streets, roads, and uh, uh, buildings and stuff. So it kind of blew me, blew me away to see that, that the possibility that something there might exist. Uh, can you address that, Ken? Yeah, and, and you're, you're getting a little far from your microphone. It was a little hard to hear you there. Um, there's no question in my mind about uh, the civilization existing on Mars at one time. And in fact, if, if you look into uh, some research done by uh, Michael Tellinger, and he wrote a book called The Slave Species of God, and it's with a little g, it goes into a lot of explanation. Rather than Anunnaki, it was the Agigi, which was a way station on Mars, as they would uh, transport gold from the Earth to Mars and then on back to Nehru. There's a tremendous amount of data in ancient um, Sumerian texts and writings that uh, Sitchin had written about and all, that would give us a clue as to not only our origin, but uh, what took place on Mars. And I have seen, uh, since working on, um, oh, let's see, Dark Mission, Monuments of Mars, and all, there, there are so many proof and pictures and things, not only um, of ancient structures that um, kind of look like Nagasaki or Hiroshima, where they've been obliterated, but they're still there over you know, a hundred, couple of hundred thousand years. There's still evidence of the ruins. And then down around the south pole of Mars, the evidence of existence of, of vegetation, we call them trees or the giant bonza trees or whatever. Uh, there, there's so much, it, let's take it this way. When we first landed on the moon, we started looking at pictures of Mars, excuse me, I meant Mars, I mean, uh, evidence that there was water. NASA took years before they would finally admit that there was evidence of water on the moon. And unfortunately, we have to find the proof and keep hammering away until they just finally give up because you've dumped a bucket of Mars water on top of them. Right, right. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, uh, there are those that say that there are planets that are hollow. What say you about the moon and Mars? as far as being hollow? Yes. I forgive me. I am having difficulty hearing you because I don't know if you're close to the microphone or not. Um, is, of course, I've, is, I've, I've read about the hollow Earth. I, okay, are well, you still there? 
Yeah, I'm here. What the, the question is, uh, is the moon or Mars or any of the planets in the solar system hollow? The only one that I would, there's several instances, but uh, we used to joke about that, and on Apollo 14 is a good example, Hadley Real, there are some pictures and things that show, looks like buttresses coming along the, the canyon, along from Mount Hadley going down into Hadley Real. It looks like it is part of the structure. And, and there's a lot of research that goes on that how, how the moon really came into orbit. Was it a part of the Earth or was it not? And, um, you know, we can go to Star Wars and we can talk about the Death Star, the giant thing about the biggest our moon, which is uh, constructed. Um, when you go to Mars and you look at Phobos, there's very strong evidence that uh, Phobos uh, is a, a hollowed out semi, not a Dyson sphere, it's not big enough for that, but is a, a hollow planetoid. Uh, and there's probably the moon is just about, could possibly be the same thing. I was wondering, concerned about YU-55, the asteroid that just passed us at the beginning of this, uh, this program, so whether or not it's going to impact on the moon or not. So is it on Apollo 11 and 12, actually on all of the lunar landing missions, one of the things we did after we rendezvoused with the command module, we separated the lunar module from it, backed it away from the command module, and then fired its retro rockets to uh, bring it into a collision with the lunar surface. We had seismographic uh, equipment that we'd put out on the lunar surface. And every time that the lunar module would hit the lunar surface, it would set up a shock wave and it would ring not only just you know, a few moments, but for hours, giving the indication that the moon was somewhat hollow, whether it's, it was man-made hollow or I should say uh, intelligently made hollow or just the way it was formed. Question for you. Uh, on some of these space missions, uh, uh, had any of this, the astronauts seen uh, any evidence of uh, craft or uh, while they were up on these missions where they actually saw other vehicles in outer space? Was anything that out, of the, out of the ordinary that they might have experienced that we weren't aware of in these missions? Hey, quite, a, quite a few of the astronauts had reported back to I know even on Apollo 11, um, Buzz Aldrin <clears throat> asked um, Mission Control where the uh, S-4B stage was that had been separated after they, they had fired it to put them into the translunar coast portion of the mission. And uh, that was actually his code. He said, well, you know, we're still, we still see it out here. Whichever one knew that it wasn't anywhere near. I mean, we're talking about thousands and thousands of miles away. You'd not be able to see a small part of an SRB rocket tumbling out into space. And then um, I'm, I'm lying right now. I can't remember the, the astronaut who's fantastic artist. Uh, he's actually talked about uh, craft that he saw. And uh, there have been a lot of things. And of course, as a, as a pilot, I, I've seen things even flying that I was unable to explain. It was without doing anything and everything we were in. I was in an F-4 Phantom. So. Question for you, Ken. Uh, in that first uh, mission, the Apollo mission, did any of the astronauts uh, die under mysterious circumstances in that whole group, uh, in the first Apollo set of astronauts? Oh, well, we, we did. We had several accidents. Uh, one of them was a, a, a failure of a, of a jet, and the, the jet plowed into it. It was either Lockheed Martin's, uh, one of the buildings there. Most of his life, there were a couple of accidents with automobile and motorcycles where astronauts died. Uh, I don't know that they would be considered um, unusual because you have to understand uh, jet jocks, we have a tendency to want to go fast 
and uh, there, there are times where we put ourselves in kind of danger that we, we, we think we can handle the moment and the situation. I don't do That's that anymore. <laughs> so now, Ken, are you not with any of the space programs now at this particular time? No. Um, I, for five years, I was uh, one of uh, NASA and JPL's solar system ambassadors. And in that capacity, I would go to oh, civic groups, schools, um, organizations, and, and talk about what um, NASA was doing in our space program and the advances we'd made. And, of course, I never talked about any of the Apollo 14 pictures or anything that would be negative at the time. But when the uh, the book uh, Dark Mission, uh, NASA's uh, history and the secret history of NASA came out, um, a gentleman by the name of James Oberg, who actually was a good friend of mine back when I was at NASA, uh, he came out on the attack on me. We've always called him the, uh, the attack dog on anything UFO or that goes bump in the night. He, he gives all kinds of explanations for him. Well, he came out attacking my credibility and at one point said I was never there. And, uh, of course, I have all the documents and records to prove it, and I put them out on the Internet and prove that he was wrong. But uh, because of that, JPL came through and put the pressure on me to resign from the Solar System Ambassador Program. Uh, I refused to do that, uh, so then I was terminated. And that was my last direct contact uh, with the, uh, the space program. Everything since then has been on my private research. Are you bitter about that, or are you you okay with that? Uh, I don't. You know, part of it, and as I explained to uh, JPL, I said, you know, you just told me that you you have people that work for you that have all kinds of different ideas and opinions, and they have this opinion, that opinion. Yet they were not going to allow my personal opinion of things of firsthand experience. So uh, yeah, I was I was a little little miffed at it, and uh, but I've come to. Uh, to accept that, and, and in a way, it it has it has demonstrated the the extent and extremes that um, NASA will go to try to keep things secret. Speaking of keeping things secret, uh, I just have a question here again. Devil's advocate again, Ken. So uh, don't don't kill the messenger here. My question is, uh, why hasn't there been another attempt to land on the moon? I probably have about as much insight on that as, as you have. There, there was talk at the time while we were there, um, the private conversation, which we considered the the medical link that we could talk to mission control privately that wasn't going out on the on the net, um, where the discussion was that uh, that there was other entities, there were other entities on the moon at the time watching us, and later the story came out that we were warned away that we weren't ready yet and for us not to come back to the moon. And now uh, we've progressed, I hope we progressed, certainly not with all the, the wars and fighting and garbage going on in the world, but in technology that we're able, and you're looking at DNA splicing and, and stuff, we're almost at the point of doing what may well have been um, part of the develop, development of Homo sapiens on our planet. And, and in essence, we weren't ready and we were told to stay away and I think the evidence speaks for itself. That's exactly what we've done. And now we're going back primarily with robotics. But when you look at where we landed each specific mission and what um, constellations and things were uh, set in, in reference to, I should say, compared with what the ancient Egyptian um, mythology was, it was kind of like we were saying, okay, we've grown up and we're ready to have contact. Well, we were held back, and I, I'm hoping we're at the point of, Closure now to where uh, we can have the open contact 
uh, either our progenitors or other Satian beings in the solar system. A question for you, Ken. Why is it that Russia has never landed a man on the moon? Or was, or was that stopped when the United States asked them to come together and partner in the, the NASA collaboration? Well, part of it was that um, you know, they, we, had, we had outspent them. We had gotten there first. There was no reason for a race there. Right now, what you're seeing is there is a worldwide race with the Chinese, the Japanese, Russia, America, and uh, all of them trying to get to Mars. And part of the reason is if uh, Phobos is, in fact, a, a um, derelict spacecraft, it's been left in orbit around Mars, like it, it, the orbit uh, of it, it seems to indicate. Whoever gets there first, the space treaty, which says that no one can lay claim to another um, another planet, does not mean that uh, you can't land on another spacecraft in whatever technology and everything you can reverse engineer or bring back with you. That's to the advantage of your particular country. So, you know, we've gone from uh, working together with the ISS space station to now there's a new space race going on amongst um, other high-tech uh, countries. Question. Uh, speaking of technology, uh, uh, you, you mentioned reverse engineering technology. Uh, uh, and a lot of the UFO specials you hear about, the craft that has been captured, uh, down craft that we uh, we took, we've got them in underground bases or wherever where uh, there is reverse technology going on to try to figure out uh, how to, uh, to produce these crafts. Any truth to that? Yes. Um, after, as I mentioned, I, I went the religious route and uh, as a Reformed Baptist minister. Uh, I had a, um, a young man come to me and ask me to perform a wedding for him uh, in Seattle at the top of the uh, Space, Space Needle um, there in Seattle. And conversations got around to space and NASA and UFOs and all. And I said, oh, let me get you this book called The Matrix, and I'll show you the information that I have. And I presented him with, with a copy, and he started looking at it, and it described what the uh, elite group with the Air Force uh, was responsible whenever a, an alien craft would go down. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. This is What Do You Think? My two guests that I have on is Gordon James. <laughs> Let's try this again. Giannini Noto and Ken Johnson. Now, our board, for some reason, is going kind of crazy. So let's say hello to everybody again. Are you there, Ken? Yes, I'm here, and it's probably the solar flares. Okay. And Gordon, are you there? Gordon, hello. Okay, so we temporarily lost Gordon for a little bit. Hopefully he'll call back. So while he's gone, Ken, we, we talked about things when we didn't have you, so now we're going to talk to you. We talked about NASA and some of the corrupts going on. You know, I'd ask them about some of the moon landings and why, you know, certain moon landings they don't want people getting close to or know anything about. And before we lost you, I'd asked about the pictures that have come from, you know, the different moon landings that the public really didn't get to see. And you were starting to say something about some of the pictures have come through. So maybe go back a little bit and start that, you know, that conversation again. Okay, well, we, we covered it quite thoroughly, um, uh, Nancy. They, I, I talked about where I was abs personally present during the doctoring of some of the film, uh, some of the pictures and of the film, and I would presume that, that that's already been gone over. I don't know if you were privy to or could hear the conversation we had. Did you? 
I didn't because I lost everything. So, <laughs> well, yeah, you, I mean, you lost really, almost a whole hour of conversation here. Um, the, the board well, we, is crazy. We, okay. Yes, Nancy, we we covered it thoroughly. I asked Ken quite a bit of questions regarding uh, the photos, the uh, positioning of the camera, and he did his best to answer his questions, and I did my best to be the devil's advocate to uh, to beg to differ with him based on my observations and what I saw. And uh, so he did an admirable job answering some of the questions, but still many people out there in the uh, in the mainstream uh, still don't, you know, buy the complete story uh and so there's a lot to be, uh, a lot of questions yet answered. Okay. So, go ahead, Ken. Um, whether or not any of the astronauts had seen uh, other craft or things that, that weren't brought to the public, and I discussed a little bit of, of Buzz Aldrin had mentioned, and um, uh, the other astronauts had done all the painting, and forgive me, I'm, I'm just not remembering the names right now. But um, to give another example of, of, of what has happened with regards to alien craft uh, crashed, which is what the question was at last. Uh, and I was explaining where I was prepared and, and did, did perform a wedding for a young man who was in the Air Force, a, a young staff sergeant. And uh, in the two days that I got to know he, him and his fiance, uh, we got to discussing UFOs and crashed. And um, then I told him all about, the, well, I have the documents to show how the Air Force plan on how to recover how to recover, retrieve, and uh, move any crashed alien spacecraft. And I was showing him the way the structure of the teams were made up and where some of the crashes were recovered. He turned as white as, as a sheet of paper, and he was shaking all over. He says, I, I, I can't deal with this right. He says, I've been on the team, and I've been told with a gun to my head that if I said anything about this stuff, that not only myself, but my family everyone would be killed. And so that was... I mean, he had to just leave that same day. And um, two days later, when we performed the wedding, we didn't really discuss it, but, but he did go ahead and say that he couldn't believe that I would have documents showing exactly what his team did. So uh, there are things that go on. You know, it, it's really funny because there are, there are many, many cover-ups going on, and not just here, but, you know, worldwide. And the thing that's really funny is I think that most of the cover-ups that they're they're trying to cover up, the people are very much aware of. And since they're aware of it, they're not really buying, you know, the whole spiel that they're giving us. So I think it's real important that people understand that, you know, you've got to look, you've got to look, you've got to go in yourself, you've got to check it out. Because, I mean, we can talk about it all day long, and we can bring out all kinds of facts. But the people themselves have got to go in, and they've got to check it out for themselves if they're to understand some of the things that are happening, you know. and they they may not believe us, and that's okay. It's their prerogative. But before you really, you know, discard all of it, go in and check out some of the stuff for yourself. I mean, you can look up all kinds of stuff. You can look up HAARP, H-A-A-R-P. You can look up moon landings. You can look up many, many things. And it, it's going to show that some of the stuff that we're talking about is a fact, whether they try to cover it up or not. Now...